0: If you would please have your Bibles open once again to 2 Samuel 7. That's the focus of our time together this morning. That's the text that we will be having a look through. And it is a wonderful portion of God's Word that we come to this morning, brimming with truth about our God, the God whom we serve, about what he's like, about the promises that he's made, and so I hope this morning as we spend some time listening carefully to this part of his word that you like me will find yourself uh, frankly amazed at the grace and the love of our God. But I want to begin by asking you to think with me uh, so just a, a bit of a British history quiz here for a moment from one who is not himself a Brit so I had to ask for help on this. Here's the question. Which was the longest-lasting royal dynasty in British royal history? Just think for a minute. Which was the house that held power for the longest time? I didn't know the answer. I had to ask. I hope I've got the right answer. I'm told that it was the house of the Plantagenets that held power for nearly two and a half centuries, nearly 250 years. If that's wrong, you can tell me afterwards. Uh, But let's go with that for just now. 250 years, a house, a dynasty ruling in this nation, especially to an American whose country is no older than that. That's a long time for one family to hold power and to rule. But of course, within world history, there are longer dynasties, aren't there? We can think maybe of the ancient Egyptians and something like the 18th dynasty, or even better than that, in ancient China, the Zhu dynasty, ruling for nearly eight centuries, 800 years, holding power. That starts to stretch our sense of, uh, of what a long time really is. But these dynasties and the houses of ruling power that they represent in our world, these kings and their successors, absolutely pale in comparison, don't they, to what we see in this text before us today. That kind of power, that longevity of rule and the blessing that it might have brought to those people crumbles to dust when we hear the words of God to David the king promising that his descendants would rule on his throne for how long? Did you hear it in the reading? Forever. Forever. There is still, according to God's word, a descendant of David ruling on his throne. And of course, I speak of our Lord King Jesus. And so this morning, we want to come to this text expecting to understand more about how it is that God's promises to set David's royal son upon that throne are brought home to us in King Jesus. Verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, God tells David, shall be established forever. And if you just cast your eyes down towards the end of the chapter in verse 26, we're given what, we're given a little hint, aren't we, of what the result of that rule, that forever rule of God's king will be. It is so that God's name will be magnified through this house that his descendant rules over forever. God's glory and his name will be magnified. So we're going to look at three very important aspects of God's truth in this chapter this morning. First of all, and here's for the children. You've got some sheets, I think, for coloring in. There are three big ideas that we're going to draw out of this text. So here they are. I'll repeat them as we go along, but here they are in preview. First of all, we see God's covenant. God's covenant with David. This promise that, God's, that God makes to David is a covenant. The word covenant doesn't appear in this chapter, but in Psalm 89, some of which we just sang a few moments ago, the psalmist looks back on this promise and says it was a covenant. God makes a covenant of promise with David. That's the first big idea. The second big idea is God's king. God's covenant is that he will set his king on David's throne. So we see God's covenant, we see God's king, and thirdly, we're going to see God establishing a royal house, a house for his name. And all three of those ideas, God's covenant, God's king and God's house are ways by which he reveals to us in this chapter his grace as well as his glory. And that's what we want to understand better this morning. Verse 27 if you see there calls this promise God makes to David a revelation. It's a revelation from God. And this revelation, this gracious promise to David in 2nd Samuel 7 is one of the high water marks in that entire story unfolding through the pages of the Old Testament, from the beginning when God creates the world, all the way up to this new beginning when God enters into human history in the person of Jesus Christ, this chapter stands as a high watermark in that story. It echoes down through the pages of that story, even beyond 2 Samuel 7, so that it moves us from Solomon, who's David's son, who will immediately, of course, sit on the throne, All the way to the time when we see Jesus as David's royal son. And we see here riches of God's sovereign grace and character revealed to us. This revelation in this chapter shows us a window into what our God is like. He is gracious. He makes promises and he keeps them. He is good. And he is majestic. He himself is the king of kings. Verse 21, he's the one who promises and whose promises reveal his heart. Do you see that in verse 21? God's promises offer us a window into his very, his very heart, his very nature, and his love and his grace in this chapter. So if you are a Christian here this morning, let me tell you what I hope you will hear from God's word. The Lord wants to take this passage this morning from his word to deepen your amazement at who he is. He wants to pierce your heart with an overwhelmed sense of gratitude that you too receive the blessing that he promises to David. The Lord wants to do something else for you this morning. He wants to draw out from you a greater boldness and courage when you come to him in prayer. Because you are depending on his promises. So all of those are for you if you are a believer here this morning. But let me warn you, if, if you are not a believer here this morning, if you are not yet a Christian, if you don't yet consider yourself to have bowed the knee to King Jesus, then fair warning, because this chapter also holds out a word from the Lord for you this morning as we see the sovereign Lord making these promises to David this morning, you should be warned that the God we worship and the God who speaks to us through these verses is not, as C.S. Lewis might have said, a tame lion. He is not domesticated and he is not safe. And so he has a word for you as well this morning, calling you to repentance and faith and submission to him. We're going to see just how that is this morning. So let's have a look at those three things in sequence. First, God's covenant, then God's king, and finally God. And see how all of these reveal to us God's gracious character and his glory. Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 7 set the scene for us, don't they? We see there that David is called the king. He's finally the king. As we read through 1st and 2nd Samuel, there is a long and a hard road before David reaches this point where he sits on the throne in Jerusalem. He is chased by Saul, the former king. He's hunted down in the wilderness, in the desert, hiding out in caves with a band of, of men guarding him. And finally, finally, after all of that persecution, all of that being chased through the wilderness, God has enabled him to take that royal throne in Jerusalem. And so, verse 1, the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. David has a throne and has a palace in Jerusalem, and he has rest and peace from his enemies. And so, verse 2, he says to Nathan the prophet, See, I've got a beautiful house, a beautiful palace house in which I dwell, but the Lord who has brought me to this place, has nothing. He's still dwelling in a tent. Because if we've followed the story thus far, we know that from the very time that God called his people and brought them out of Egypt until this moment with David, he has not dwelt in any one place permanently. He has dwelt in a tent a movable tent called the tabernacle. And that tabernacle has moved around, hasn't it, with Israel as they have gone from place to place. And David knows that although the ark in chapter 6, just one chapter before this, has been brought to the very doorstep of Jerusalem, the city of the great king, it still has nowhere permanent to reside. So David says, why should I live in a house of cedar when the Lord has no place to dwell, no place of honor, no temple house. What does David want to do? He wants to build God a temple. When a king wins victory over his enemies in the ancient Near East and finally sets up his throne, this is what he does. He builds a temple for the God who blessed him and brought him victory. David is a king. He wants to build a temple for his God. So, Nathan the prophet says, verse 3, Do it. Do all that is in your heart, David. Go ahead and do this. But verses four to seven show us that the Lord, as is so often the case, has different plans to David's. But verse four, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. He says, would you, David, would you build me a house? You can, hear, you can hear the Lord's tone in that question, can't you? And you can see which direction that question is tipping. What makes you think, David, that you are fit to build me a house? I am not like the gods of the nations. You cannot possibly build me a house that would ever suffice for my glory. Verse 5. God is not a God like the nations. He is greater even than David could possibly imagine at that moment in verses 1 to 3 when he offers to build him a temple. Would you build me a house? Verse 5. Verse 6, God reminds David through Nathan, doesn't he, that ever since he brought Israel out of Egypt, he's not had a temple in which to dwell. Verse 7, he says, I've never commanded anyone Thus far to build me a temple. I've never asked for a permanent dwelling place. Not from the judges, not from Samuel, not from Saul. Never have I asked for this. Would you build me a temple, David? Verses 8 and 9. The Lord shifts, doesn't he? Now he's going to give directions. Having questioned David's plans, now he is going to tell David what his plans are for David. So verse 8, he says, now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture and set you as prince over my people Israel. Verse 9, and I have been with you wherever you went. Second half of verse 9, and I will make for you a great name. Do you hear what the Lord is doing? David says, I will build the Lord a house. The Lord says, no, you won't. No, you won't. I will do these things for you just as I have done. Do you hear the Lord's expression of his own sovereign power and grace, his initiation of what he will do to bless David? David, you have not done any of these things in and of your own strength. I have brought you thus far, and now I will make you into a house. You are not going to build a house for me. I am going to make you into a dynasty, a dynasty that will last forever. Who is this God? Brothers and sisters, do you, do you hear what the text, do you hear what God's word says to us about who he is already in these verses? Who is this God, verse 8, who is going to bless David? Thus says who? The Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts What does this reveal to us about who our God is? Who is the Lord of hosts? Well, this is a name that explodes on the pages of 1 and 2 Samuel. If you think back to 1 Samuel chapter 4 and following, when when the Israelites were going to war against the Philistines, and they went out, what did they take with them? They took the ark of God's covenant, that box of wood overlaid with gold, carried by poles, and on top of it, on its lid, Two cherubim, two angels whose wings are touching this box, which was meant to be and was understood to be by them. The very footstool on which the feet of God rested as he descended in glory, glory cloud to dwell amidst his people in the tabernacle. The ark of the Lord was his footstool because the Lord was a king. And in Samuel, the Lord begins to be called the Lord of hosts. He's not just any king. He is the king who commands the angelic hosts. The hosts of heaven are at his command. He is the king of all kings, the sovereign Lord over all lords. He is royal and majestic beyond all imagining. This is the Lord who is speaking to David, the Lord of hosts, This is what it means when we say that God is sovereign. Perhaps you've heard that word thrown around in churches or in Christian Christian conversation. Perhaps if you are a young person, a child here, you've heard your parents speak of God as sovereign. Well, let me tell you this morning what that means. That means that God is a king with a capital K. God is the greatest king there ever was. He is the Lord of hosts and none can stand before him. And this is the God who says to David, I took you, I made you, I will make you. It is God's sovereign, kingly power who will do these things for David. God is the one who takes the initiative. God is the one who has the sovereign power to make this happen. As we follow on from verse 9, then through the rest of this opening section of the chapter, down to verse 17. Look at what God promises to David. Remember, this is a covenant, but it is a covenant of promise. God declaring what he will do for David, and not asking David for obedience as a condition of these blessings. This is very important that we notice the promissory basis of this covenant. God makes with David. Follow with me very quickly as we look from verse 9 to verse 17. God says, I will make you a great name. Verse 10, I will a place for you and your people to dwell. Verses 10 and 11, you will be disturbed no more. Your enemies will leave you alone. You'll have rest and peace. Verse 11 at the end, I will make you into a house. You'll be a dynasty. Verse 12, I will raise up your offspring Your seed, your descendant. Just pause there for a moment. Do you hear those promises? Promises about a name, a place for a people to dwell, rest and peace for them to enjoy, a seed that will become a dynasty? If you know your Old Testament even a little bit, I hope that those bells are ringing loudly in your ears. Who has been promised before this story those things? Whom did God promise to make into a great nation, to bless the entire world through his seed, to make him a dynasty, to give him a great name? Wasn't that Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 on through 15? God made these same kinds of promises to Abraham. And now, as we come to David, those promises are being renewed and being amplified. This is an amazing chapter simply because of how much God speaks, speaks directly about who he is and what he will do within the Old Testament. This is the same promise God made to Abraham. And now he's making it to David that the promise to the nations through Abraham will be realized through David's line, through David's house. It will be David's son who blesses the nations in this way. But it goes on, doesn't it? Verse 13, your descendant will build me a house, a temple. Well, immediately that's going to be Solomon, isn't it? In the following chapters and the following uh, sections of this Old Testament story. And Solomon, verse 14, will be called by God a son. God will be to him a father and he will be a son, as will all of the subsequent descendants after Solomon. But, verse 14, what will happen if those kings on the throne in the line of David disobey? If they are unfaithful, if they sin, if they do not rule in righteousness, God says he will discipline them with his rod. He will scourge them. He will discipline them to bring them back because they are not being faithful to him but verse 15 do you see that's how this is not it is not a condition of the blessing that god promises that those kings obey do you see that in verse 15 because verse 15 is critical here but god says my steadfast love will not depart from him even if those kings prove unfaithful as they will Even if all Israel is unfaithful to me, Yahweh says, I will show my steadfast love to David and through David to them. And so, verse 17, God sends Nathan back to communicate these promises to David. This is God's covenant revealed in this chapter. And it is a covenant of promise, of unbelievable promise and blessing to come to David and through David to his people. We need to stop here for just a moment, brothers and sisters, and think about how we can apply this to our own hearts this morning. First of all, what we see in this chapter, I hope, cannot possibly leave us cold, leave us untouched in our affections. As we see this great, majestic God condescending and reaching down To bless his people who don't deserve it. What should this do? This should call forth praise and love from our hearts. Just as it does for the psalmist in Psalm 89, which we sang earlier in the service. Psalm 89.1 says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. Why? Well, verses 3 and 4 go on to say, because you, Lord, have said, I will make a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David My servant, do you see that even for us, so many centuries after this, this promise was made to David, there ought to be praise and thanksgiving and gratitude and joy welling up in our hearts as we see that the God whom we serve is a God of gracious promise, reaching down, revealing his heart of grace and love to David in these chapters. Is that true for you this morning? Do you realize the depths and the riches of grace? And does that move you to praise? I hope that it does. And I hope that the Holy Spirit might take God's word and impress it more deeply upon your heart this morning. So that you overflow with praise to him. Does it also, does it also for you not humble you in awe before the one who is seated above the cherubim, the one who commands the very hosts of heaven, and that that one is the same one who has promised never to leave you nor forsake you because of his faithfulness to Abraham, his sure and steadfast love to David. Does that not humble you and draw forth Praise from your lips, boys and girls, this morning, as you think about god 's covenant and his promises, I hope that you heard before I came up here the reading from Pastor Andy about the fact in Acts chapter two that these promises are not just for adults they 're not they 're not just for mums and dads. And grandmas and grandpas, because Act chapter 2 says these promises are for you, those adults listening to Peter there, and for your children. God's gracious covenant promises are for you, boys and girls, as well, this morning. Well, God's covenant is a covenant of grace, and we see that large in this chapter. But there's not just a covenant here, there's a king. And more briefly, we need to have a look at God's king and then God's house. God's king stands at the center of his promises. In fact, whether or not we are recipients of the grace that God promises to David depends completely how we stand in relation to God's king. If we do not submit ourselves to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, then we are not those who receive the blessing of these promises. We stand outside the circle of covenant blessing that we have just been speaking of. But if we if we bow the knee to King Jesus, then everything, every blessing listed here on these pages is for us. Our relationship to God's king, that is, to King Jesus, is absolutely central here. Let's have a look briefly at what these verses say about God's king. First of all, it tells us that God's king is a servant. I don't know if you caught that language as you were listening. Do you see how the titles that are used in this chapter for both God and for David and his descendants are pressed upon our ears again and again and again? David is appointed, verse 8, as a ruler. That's something we would expect from a king. And his seed will be, verse 14, Yahweh's son. But overwhelmingly, what is the title that's used for David in this chapter? It is servant. The king is Yahweh's servant. Do you see it? Verse 5, verse 8, verse 19, verse 21. Do you see again and again and again? David is Yahweh's servant, the Lord's servant. Verse 25, verse 26, verse 28, verse 29. Again and again and again, David is the servant of Yahweh. He's Yahweh's man. When I say Yahweh, I mean the Lord. In your Bible, sometimes you'll see capital L-O-R-D, and the word behind that is Yahweh, the personal name of our covenant God, revealed in the Old Testament, David is Yahweh's servant. He is set on the throne to do Yahweh's will. He is Yahweh's ruler, meant to bless through his rule the people of Yahweh. He is Yahweh's servant. God's king is God's servant to do his will and to rule over his people. Well, if David and David's descendants are meant to be Yahweh's servant, who is the Lord, Yahweh, revealed to be in these verses. We've already seen how he is the Lord of hosts, haven't we? The royal king of kings seated above the cherubim on top of the ark. Verse 8, verse 26, verse 27, the repetition of that phrase, the Lord of hosts, by whose power and might David has been placed on the throne. But even more striking than that is the name that David uses in his prayer of worship and response in the second half of this chapter, again and again for God. Did you see it as this chapter was being read out? The Lord is called the Lord God. And in your Bibles that you've got before you, God is capitalized. All capitals, isn't it? G-O-D, capitals. This is a, this is a special name for God. It's not all that common in the Old Testament. It was used by Abraham to speak of God, and here again it's used more than it's ever going to be used again by David. He says that the Lord is the Lord God. Literally, He is the Lord Yahweh. David is, by saying this, expressing that Yahweh is his king even as he is a king set over the people that Yahweh is the ruler the sovereign one he's almighty he's utterly powerful he's the great king and he is therefore David's lord and David is his servant so the king of 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a servant but he's also a son isn't he verse 14 David's seed his offspring will be king after him that's first Solomon but Eventually, we know from Acts chapter 2 and, in, in fact, the entire New Testament, this is the Lord Jesus, David's son, David's greater son, who is a king that will be both a servant and a son. In our chapter here, the Lord promises to David that if his sons are disobedient, what will he do? He will bring the rod of his discipline. And we know, in fact, this happens. So, for example, in Isaiah's prophecy to Ahaz, in Isaiah chapter 7 on through chapter 10, he tells Ahaz, you have disobeyed me and I'm going to bring against you and against the northern kingdom Assyria as the rod of my judgment. You will be disciplined. You'll be disciplined. Those kings deserved the discipline they received from Yahweh's hand. But David's greater son, who was also a servant, who is in fact the servant spoken of later in Isaiah's prophecy, the one who would suffer, the one who would take the rod upon his own back, the one who would receive the stripes that he did not deserve, is the Lord Jesus, the servant son of God, who came to give his own life, as we've heard in recent weeks in Mark's Gospel, as a ransom for many. Jesus is God's king in the line of David. And so this morning, we have to realize what it is to be a believer who is part of the house of David, ruled over by David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. What was this last week like for you? Was there, was there any uncertainty were you ill? Were you anxious about either the present or what's coming in the future? Were you receiving opposition in your workplace? Perhaps because it is known that you have integrity, that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, that you're different, that you don't you don't go along, you don't get along in the way that the others do. Have you faced any of that in this last week? Well, if you have then know that the Lord Jesus is king. He is Yahweh's servant son who is set as king over the house, which is the church. And know that he is ruling in your behalf. Know that he is king even when circumstances around you are actually very difficult and pressing in upon you. If you feel that kind of pressure just now in your life and you look around you and you doubt that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is ruling for his glory and for your good, then can I urge you this afternoon, this week, to go home and to read right through Psalm 89. Psalm 89, which is a beautiful reflection on this promise and what it means to cling to this promise even when the world seems to be crumbling around you. Psalm 89. Also read through Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah 33. Another wonderful reflection on what it means to cling to this promise that God made to David, realized in Jesus, when we're not so sure in our lives. Jesus is king, even when things don't appear that they are under his control. But... If you are not here believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus this morning, this is where I have to pause to press God's word upon your heart and your mind for just a moment. Because I mentioned before, you are not one who receives the blessings promised to David if you do not bow the knee to the king who comes from David's seed. If the Lord Jesus Christ is not the king of your life, If you have not turned to him in repentance of your sin, acknowledging that you desperately need a Savior to save you from yourself, to pay the penalty for sin, then you are not one who receives these blessings. In fact, you are counted, and this is difficult to hear, but this is what God's word tells us. You are counted As one who is outside, one who is a stranger, one who is even an enemy of this King Jesus. Is that where you are this morning? Because you have not yet submitted your life to King Jesus. If it is, then can I plead with you on the basis of God's promises this morning to repent and turn by faith to the Lord Jesus? What is it that is keeping you from turning to Him this morning? Is it your pride? Is it that, in fact, you are, in your life, trying to build a house for your own name, for your own glory, and you think you don't need the Lord? You think, actually, my life is all right. I've got it under control. I'm surely a good enough person that it will work for me at some point when the Lord calls me to account. Is that you? Is it your pride that keeps you from bending the knee to King Jesus this morning. Because if it is, do you realize how ridiculous and unsustainable that is in the face of a God who is the Lord of hosts, the King of all kings, the one who will call you to account someday, and the one who promises to bless you if you simply turn to him in repentance and faith, acknowledging your sin and your need for him? He doesn't ask you to do anything. He doesn't condition his blessing upon anything that you could ever do. He simply says in the words of our call to worship, come, come to me and buy bread with no money. What kind of economics is this? It's the economics of God's covenant of grace, brothers and sisters, this morning, that offers you free food and drink when you are starving and, in fact, you are dead. It is an invitation that says to you, Come to me and I will lift you up and make you alive and make you part of my people ruled over by my son. Perhaps it's your pride that keeps you away this morning. Then bend the knee, kill your pride. Ask the Lord Jesus to do for you what you cannot do this morning—to kill your pride and to draw you to Himself. Or maybe you already know. Maybe you know your great need for the Lord Jesus, and maybe it's something else that's holding you back. Maybe it's the sense that you think you've got to—you've got to do something more. You—you—you you've, you've, you can see your sin. You can see that you're unworthy. You can see that desperately you need the Lord Jesus, but you're just not worthy enough, and you think you've got to get your life in order. You think you've got to somehow somehow do something and draw yourself together before you're worthy to receive the blessings spoken of here on the basis of these promises. If that is you this morning, then you need to give that up. You need to hear this morning these promises which reduce anything that you could ever do to ashes and dust. If you could do something to earn the blessing that is promised on these pages, then the Lord Jesus would not have had to go as the servant son of God to the cross of Calvary. And so the cross, the cross itself, reduces any pride and any sense that you can make yourself worthy to nothing. And it leaves you in the place this morning that you simply need the Lord Jesus to make you new. And to make you alive in Him. Turn to Him by faith if that's you this morning. The Lord's covenant of grace revealed to us. The Lord's servant son who is a king revealed to us this morning. And lastly and very quickly, the Lord's house. What is this entire chapter about? Isn't it about the Lord making a house for His own name? David, you can't build me a house. You never could. Even the temple that your son Solomon will build me will never do justice to my majesty and glory. I will build a house for my name. And it's not a house made of stones, not a house made of bricks. Boys and girls, can you think of what is the grandest palace house in this great city of London? Are there some pretty amazing houses, huge houses, beautiful houses, royal houses? Maybe you've seen Buckingham Palace and watched the changing of the guard. Maybe you've even gone to Windsor Castle and seen the enormous size of that place where kings and queens have dwelt. Do you know what? The house that God promises to David to build for himself in this chapter exceeds all of those castles. In fact, it is greater and bigger and more glorious than anything we've ever seen. It's not a house made of stone. It is his people, the church, you and I, being built up stone upon holy stone in the Lord Jesus as a house for the glory of his name. And so this morning, we need to consider whether we can respond in an appropriate way to the Lord's grace shown to us in in his son, Jesus. Can we say with David in verse 18, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Who am I? Aren't we absolutely humbled, overwhelmed by the grace that God would save even us, even sinners such as we? And are we stirred up to pray to the Lord with great confidence on the basis of his promises? You see what David says in verse 27 as he continues to praise God. He says, therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Do you ever doubt whether the Lord will hear your prayers? Do you ever Hesitate to ask great things from God. Do you ever cower because you know that you've sinned again? You've done that same thing again. How could you come to the Lord Jesus and ask forgiveness for that same foolish sin yet again? Well, like David, take courage on the basis of the Lord's promises. It is his promises and his gracious character which invites us to pray boldly to him that he would make us into a house for the glory of his name. Friends, we are currently looking for a pastoral assistant. You know this, don't you? We've asked you, as the Kirk Session, to be praying about this matter. We have had a candidate who came down, and you know from our update in the letter that mutually he has decided this was not the right fit for him. This is not where the Lord was calling him. Can I ask you to be praying on the basis of God's promises to David that he would make London City Presbyterian Church a house for the glory of his name and provide the ministers and the workers that we need to carry on the work of the gospel in this city. The need is great. The God whom promises is even greater. We need to pray on the basis of the promises that he gives us this morning god reveals to us a covenant he reveals to us a king in his son the lord jesus and he reveals that he wants to make us as his church into a house for the glory of his name as we go into our week to come uh, this week let us cling to these promises that god reveals to david and let us be empowered to live faithful and lives of gratitude as we pray boldly to the Lord that he might bless us for his glory. Amen.